Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. We're looking at Judges, chapter 6, verses 11 through 24. And then chapter 7, verses 2 through 9. And some of you may be familiar with this. This isn't one of, the, one of those judges that no one's heard of. This is actually one of the judges that people have. This is Gideon. And we're looking at this passage, Judges 6, 11 through 24. And then chapter 7, verse 2 through 9. Hear now, word of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the earth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Beazerite. Son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said to him, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, 
Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Beazrites. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, he shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his own home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. But 300 remained. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many of you have grown up hearing the story of, story of Gideon, most likely the section that we skipped with the fleece. I want to ask you a simple question. Is the story of Gideon true? Is it just a story? Is it a myth? Or is it actually true? In 2019, archaeologists who were digging in southern Israel in the Shaharia forest, they found in the foothills of Judea a fragment of a jug. And using pottery typology and radiocarbon dating, they determined that this jug was from around 1200 to 1100 BC. What's most interesting about this discovery is that on this fragment were Hebrew letters written in ink. And those Hebrew letters, what did they spell? They spelled the name Jerub Baal, which was the name given to Gideon when he overturned the idols to Baal. This is a strange story. 
Because Gideon and his army are about to, of 300 are about to come up against an army of 135,000. You have this strange encounter with an angel appearing to Gideon. Gideon makes him a great supper, right? He makes meat and bread. And what does the angel do? He doesn't even eat it. He burns it up. That would make for a bad Christmas dinner, right? You spend a lot of time preparing the meal, and your husband goes out and says, the Lord is with me, and then burns it. It'd be awful. The entire interaction here, in many ways, mirrors what we see when the angel appeared to Elizabeth and Simeon. There's an element of unbelief, and yet through all of the strangeness of the story, the more and more we see in in other historical books, in archaeology, they merely confirm that what we have as Scripture is absolutely true. So what we're going to see today here in Judges 6 and 7 is the true story of a man that though he's forsaken and though he's weak, the Lord chose him to save his people from all their enemies. And then ultimately what we're going to see is how Christ himself in weakness became forsaken for us that he might save us from our greatest enemies, sin and death and hell. We're going to take it in three parts. We're going to look at this forsaken that Gideon uses. We're going to take, when he's talking about my clan is the weakest and I'm the weakest. And then finally, we're going to look at Gideon's faith and his deliverer. So we'll start with this forsaken. We didn't read it, but it's important to understand the context of what we have here in Judges. In chapter 6, verse 1, it begins by saying this. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. In the book of Judges, there is a cycle. In Joshua, the book right before Judges in the Old Testament, the people come into this land that was promised to Abraham a long time ago. They cross the Jordan River, and they are told to wipe out all the enemies. They kind of do, and they leave a lot behind. And what happens in the book of Judges is these continual cycles of the people of Israel, God's people, beginning to worship idols, turning away from God, the Lord giving them into the hands of their enemies, the people crying out, and then God sending them a deliverer. That's what Judges is all about. And here in Judges 6, before Gideon is called onto the scene, what we have is the Israelites being given over to the Midianites 
for seven years. What did that look like in this case? In chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it says this, For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land. The Israelites were being systematically starved to death. They would plant things, and as soon as it was ready for harvest, the Midianites and the Amalekites would come and say, ah, it's ready for harvest. They would swoop in because they, were, because they outnumbered the Israelites. They had more firepower than the Israelites. They would steal all their stuff, all of their food, and then leave. And so even at this time, most of the Israelites were living in caves on the sides of mountains. And they were. They were starving to death. And so what we have in the scripture that we read in verse 11 makes sense. Where verse 11 says, Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Because they were going to take it. Wine presses at this time were either, were next to the house, and they were either kind of depressed areas in the ground, or they were entirely underground. And so what Gideon did, he harvested all of this wheat, and rather than getting out there with a mill where everyone could see it, he took it into the wine press where the Midianites wouldn't see it so that he could keep his wheat and not starve to death. That's the context then going into verse 12 where the angel of the Lord appears. And the angel of the Lord says to Gideon this, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Do you imagine Gideon hearing that? Gideon's people have been devoured and systematically starved for seven years. And then Gideon himself, he had taken his wheat and rightfully afraid was either in a depressed area next to the ground or under the ground, beating out the wheat in the wine press. And the angel of the Lord comes and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon's probably thinking, are you kidding me? I'm so brave, I'm taking care of my wheat in the wine press. He was, we can see this in verse 13. Gideon gets really sharp with his tongue, which really I kind of love. What I love it. We can be honest with the Lord. If you read the Psalms, some of the things that David says, whew. And Gideon, he's very frank. Here's what he says in verse 13. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, 
Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Nothing that Gideon said was untrue. And you could see that he is wrestling with the same sort of questions even that we do today. In his first sentence, please, if he's with us, then why has all this happened to us? Look at your own life, your own trials. There is no doubt that you have asked the very same thing that I have, that Gideon has, with us so was Gideon right was he correct well on one hand he was yes because what I just read earlier verse 1 it said this the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. It seems like in much of modern evangelicalism nowadays, there's this dirty little secret that everything bad comes because of Satan and everything good comes because of the Lord. You know what the problem with that is? The Bible doesn't teach that at all. And even in the New Testament, we get more clarification and nuance on that. That these things for Christians are discipline from the Lord. It was the Lord who gave them over to Midian. We can't go blaming our problems on Satan. The Lord did this, and he did it for a purpose. So was Gideon correct? Did the Lord forsake his people? Yes. But on the other hand, no. Because on the other hand, the Lord didn't completely forsake his people. Because right before the passage, what happens is he hears his people's cry and he helps them. It says that Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help from the Lord. They cried out and he helped them. That's not the actions of a God who has completely forsaken you. It's just simply not. And the Lord responded to the cry by sending them a prophet, and then ultimately by sending them a warrior to deliver them. And that warrior is Gideon. So do you feel like Gideon? Do you feel forsaken? I don't mean necessarily in all things. But Are there aspects where you do feel forsaken? Do you look at the reality of your life and then measure it against an internal standard and say, 
if the Lord was with me, then this would be different. If that's the case, do your feelings match what Scripture says? While Gideon was correct, the Lord has forsaken us, he wasn't ultimately correct. Because he should have continued. He should have said, I realize that it seems like the Lord has forsaken us forever, but I know the promises that he's given to the forefathers. And I know that that's not true. And I know that one day he will deliver us and ultimately he will send us the great deliverer. That's what Gideon should have said, but he didn't. He responds in the way that he does after the angel of the Lord appears to him and seems to insult him by saying, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So Gideon says, first, we're forsaken, but his second response is actually even more personal. In verse 15, Gideon says this, and Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon moves from being forsaken then to being the weakest. What made Gideon believe that he was the weakest of the weak? What made him believe that? Well, first, we see that he's of the tribe of Manasseh. If you remember earlier in Genesis, the 12 tribes of Israel came from the patriarch Jacob, had 12 sons, and those are the original 12 tribes. And one of those sons was Joseph, and Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob ended up adopting both of his grandsons as his own sons after one of Jacob's original sons, Reuben, lost his birthright. Manasseh was older than Ephraim. So Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Manasseh was the oldest, should have gotten the greater birthright. When they're adopted by their grandfather, Jacob, Jacob says, no, nah, I'm going I'm to bless the younger one more. So, Manasseh wasn't really one of the original tribes of Israel. It was a half-tribe. And even at that, there's two half-tribes. Which one came in last place? Manasseh did. So that's the first. The second was that Gideon's clan was the weakest in this half-tribe. We see elsewhere in the book of Judges that Gideon's father, Joash, he was a known and prominent idol worshiper. This is how Gideon gets this nickname, Jerob Baal, which can mean Baal fighter because he tears down these idols that his father had up that everyone knows about. He's in the people of God 
and a known idolater. His clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And then Gideon himself says that he is the least of the clan. We don't really know much about that other than this is Gideon's own words. So Gideon is the least of a clan, a clan that's led by his idolater father, a clan that's a part of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but not really. It's a half-tribe, and it's the least of the half-tribes. So if you're going to choose a deliverer, angel of the Lord, why would you come knocking on my door when I'm down here in secret beating out some wheat in a wine press? Why does it matter that Gideon was the weakest of the weak? Do you ever wonder that? This is, this is a biblical theme. God, to my knowledge, he never says in Scripture, hey, let's just choose an average guy. And let's do this. He chooses the oldest, past childbearing age to have children. He chooses one of the youngest to do things. He chooses the smallest the least capable, and here in Gideon, the weakest of the weak. Why does it matter? Because the Lord loves using the weak and the forsaken for his purposes. This principle we see in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where the Lord says to the apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Same root word. And so Paul's response then is, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And this is the principle that we see in Judges 7 when the Lord is assembling an army to fight with Gideon. He starts with 32,000. And then, believe it or not, according to a law in Leviticus, if you're afraid, you don't have to fight. And so 22,000 are sent home because they're afraid. That leaves 10,000. And of those 10,000, they go down to the river to drink. And what you have, I'm going to try to enact it without getting on the ground. What you have is two different things. The first is you have those who put their hands on the ground and stick their face into the river to drink. And then those who squat by the river, grab water out of their hands and drink it like this, like a dog, as it says. Of those who squat down next to the river, put their face in the river, 9,700 do that. And those who squat and do this to drink, there's 300. The text didn't really say, but why would God choose these who are doing this? Because their eyes are on the battle. They're prepared. They're ready. They're not down with their faces in the water. What are those concerned about? Those are concerned about filling their needs. And these others, they're concerned about filling God's needs. So you get from 32,000 
down to 300 to defeat an army of 135,000 Midianites. By the way, on their home turf, the Midianites are playing a home game here. And the Lord seems entirely happy about this situation. He goes, now is finally where I want it. It doesn't matter if you're the weakest of the weak. And kids, youth, this applies to you guys. Just because you're small and you're still in school and you have homework, and even though your parents don't have homework, God can use you in fantastic and mighty ways. And this also means you don't have to be smart or successful or well put together. You don't have to be the most gifted for God to use you. It also means, by the way, this is going to be my last sermon at Trinity. I'm going to go out strong here. Um, It also means that... All this stuff you see on social media, people posting, they don't, most of the time, they don't post their weaknesses, right? Like, God doesn't care that you made 68 gingerbread cookies. You're not a hero. Actually, God probably cares more that you weren't really able to get much done at all because it's in that type of person that God works the most mightily. Because in that type of person, they realize their need for the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're the weakest of the weak. Why not? Verse 16 in chapter 6 says this. The Lord says to Gideon, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So even though Gideon was forsaken and he was the weakest of the weak, what made him willing to fight this overwhelming enemy? His trust in the deliverer. We, like Gideon, we may feel forsaken, we may feel weak, But Christ is the better Gideon. And he, friends, he is with us. And he himself, as one man, defeats all of our enemies. It's not up to you to be Gideon. If you're hearing that, unhear it. You're not Gideon. You're not David slaying Goliath. You're not Solomon, if I'm backing up some, crushing the Philistines. You're not Moses. Christ is. Christ is. We're forsaken and we're weak, but Christ himself became the most forsaken and the most weak that he may defeat all of God's enemies. So how did he do it? 
First, he did it in his incarnation. You see, in this passage, Gideon hides from his enemies in the wine press. That's what any of us would do. Although Christ, in his incarnation, in his being made a man like you and like me, he, through the, the proclamation of angels, through the star in the sky, through the shepherds and wise men, he announced his arrival to the entire world. Gideon, he arrived to defeat his enemies with 300 men. Now, that's not a lie. That's still 300 helpers. Christ, he arrived to defeat his enemies alone as one man. So he defeats his enemies in his incarnation. How else does he defeat his enemies? Christ defeats his enemies in his death. And we see the contrast here pretty starkly. Gideon triumphs through the iron of swords. Christ triumphs through the iron of a Roman hammered nail. Gideon triumphs through the blood of his enemies, but Christ triumphs through his own blood. Gideon triumphs through life, and Christ triumphs through his own death. Christ defeats all of his enemies in the incarnation, in his death, but also, and finally, in his resurrection. How? The story of Gideon closes like this in, a same, in the same way as other judges. It says, Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father. What does it tell us? It tells us that Gideon's ashes are still in that tomb. He is still there to this day. But Christ's tomb, it is empty. He defeats all of our enemies. And so in this Christmas season, Christ appeared in the weakness of human flesh, forsaken by men and ultimately by God, so that he might save us from our greatest enemies, sin and death and ultimate separation from God. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we praise you for this that you are the greater Gideon. That you are the one who defeats our enemies and ultimately that you do so because you love us. Your love and concern and willingness to be born like us, to die worse than us is such an overflow of just generosity beyond generosity. It's an avalanche of grace. And so this morning as we ponder your word, give us generous hearts that in this Christmas time, uh, we would give back to your work through this local body in a way that reflects the generosity that you've given us. In your name we pray.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.